Thank you for tuning in to RTM Nation Online, where we believe that you will receive the abundance of peace, prosperity, security, stability, health, healing, and truth. If you would like to learn more about the ministry, click the link below. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Now let's get into the message. You know, we're, we're, we're getting close to the end of our Uncommon Common Sense Common Sense series. We probably have about, uh, probably about four more sessions to do. Today's session, I'm going to break into two, um, partly because, number one, I, I really enjoy the opportunity we have to discuss things in a reasonable amount of time, but not so long to where you're like Jesus, or that it gets so much detail that it kind of, the message kind of gets blurred. The intent is to learn and to grow. The intent is not for me to try to dispense everything that God put in my heart for the next three weeks today. That being said, we will continue what we start today another Sunday, but let's get started. We talked last week, and when we talked last week, it dealt with the healing process surrounding an apology. An apology is an expression. It's an expression. It can be verbal or written, but we're talking about verbal expression. It's an expression that one gives when they have a regret after having done something wrong. And they extend that to the person that they've wronged. Now, keep in mind that what we call a wrongful act can be actual or perceived. It can also be intentional or unintentional. Now, a common apologetic statement is, I'm sorry. Even though we say that, and all of us at one point in time have either been on the giving or receiving end of some form of an I'm sorry, even if you didn't use those words. But when we, when we do that, when we say that, you know, that apology it's not necessarily the thing in and of itself that cures the pain. So we say that I'm sorry is not a cure-all because the I'm sorry in and of itself is not necessarily the cure. It's not necessarily the cure and how soon the person gets healed depends on both the person and the depth of the hurt. You might heal faster than me. I may take longer than you and vice versa. And you know what? We may be identical in personality, but the pain you got was maybe somebody just talked about you. But the pain I got may have been, you know, somebody that I cared for and loved just deceived me greatly, and that hurt is just greater. So even though we have a similar personality, the healing time for me is going to be a little bit longer. So the healing time depends on both the person and the type of hurt. Just because one says, says I'm sorry, it doesn't mean that that apologetic statement automatically flips the switch and that relationship gets back to, way, to the way it was, if it can, automatically or instantly. It just don't work like that. When a person's feelings get injured, it's almost as if a part of their heart breaks. 
it's almost as if something inside of them is ruptured. Now, contrary to what some people might think, once again, me simply looking at you and telling you I'm sorry, that's no, that's no magic, that's no secret sauce to all of a sudden putting all those pieces back together again. There's no, there's no secret sauce in an apology. Now, it, it definitely means that an apology can be part of or one of many components that help put that person back together. But simply saying to you, I'm sorry, that's no magic sauce that all of a sudden you snap your fingers and everything just gets better. When we say I apologize or I'm sorry is not a cure-all, we need to know that an injured heart mends over time. An injured heart does not mend instantly. It's over time. And because I'm going to heal over time, now instinctively, because I'm hurt, I may distance myself from the individual or the individuals that hurt me. I may do that instinctively. And that distancing, by the way, can be mental, it can be emotional, or it can be physical. It can be any combination of those things. The bottom line is, it's instinctive for me to separate from somebody who is out to hurt me or who has hurt me in the past. When I understand that someone who I've hurt might separate themselves from me, and that very person may be someone that I'm committed to love or that I want in my life, I all of a sudden got something that needs to go off in my head that says, hey, I can't walk around this earth thinking that I'm sorry is some, type, some kind of great get out of jail free card because it's not. It's none of those things. Frankly, the healing of a heart is complicated. It's not just one thing. And having the simple fact that we need to understand what the way the apology system or the apology process works aids us in at least working ourselves through it. A mended heart needs more than just a simple apology. Therefore, gaining insight into the apology process is important for anyone in relationships. It's important because an apology deals with mending a heart and relationships are heart connections. Therefore, the insights surrounding an apology in that process, those insights are important for someone looking to be in a relationship or who has relationships. Here are at least three points that we should have gathered so far from the apology process. Those items are this. It is good to have a working knowledge of what, what an apology actually does. It is important to understand that an apology is but part of the healing process. It's important to realize that good behavior and patience are the best assets for relationship recovery if you are the one that did the hurting. For individuals who are in close 
active relationships. That's important because there are some relationships that you have that are not active. They're close, but not active. I have a friend named Jay. I've known Jay since we were much younger. Jay used to live in Tampa. He's been all over now. He now lives in California. I might see Jay or text Jay in the course of a year. I may see him once or twice a year. We may text three times a year, but that relationship, make no bones about it, is close. We understand the distance, but that distance never puts a distance between us. But you also have close, active relationships. We are a close, active relationship. We see each other often. The people in your house, close, active relationships. You see them often. When a person has a close, active relationship, it's even more critical that they understand how the apology process works. The more active your relationship, the more frequent your interaction. And the more frequent your interaction, the higher the probability that at some point in time, somebody is going to step on somebody's toes. If I say that different, I would say it this way. The more frequent we interact, the higher the possibility that somebody's feelings going to get hurt. It's just more probable. Gosh, family, it's just, it's just math. The more often you get on your bike to ride your bike, the higher the probability that at some time you're going to fall off your bike. Any cooks in the house? Uh, listen, the more often you cook using your stove, the more likely you are to burn your hand or your arm on a hot piece of metal. People at work be thinking you got abused. You got all kind of skin, skin up on your arm. It's just more likely. Look, I heard, I heard our, our wonderful praise and worship leader talking about going out and getting a bite to eat. Look, the more often you chew, whether it's gum or your favorite meal, the more likely your tongue and your gum and your lip are in danger for getting bit. <laughs> y'all know y'all done bit y'all tongue sometimes. It make you want to put the whole meal away. But it's just the more often you do something, the more likely something just bad might happen. Or unexpected or undesired might happen. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to be out of the NIV version. Now, I know I've stated this before, and I'm going to state it again because it's worth stating. Good family and good friends are benefits in your life. And they are benefits. Those relationships are worth nurturing and they're worth protecting. There are many things that go into nurturing and protecting a relationship. And recently, we've talked about at least three. Those things are, number one, 
you need to keep a good, solid level of trust. Number two, you need to avoid the creation of bad history. And the corresponding part of that is you need to make it your business to make good history with those people. The third one was that you need to understand the apology process, which we've just kind of summarized for you over the past few minutes. With those three items behind us, let us explore, explore a fourth relationship item. And that fourth relationship item is for a topic that I will give you shortly, but for right now, let's set up our discussion. And we're going to set it up here in 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 8. You know, keeping a close eye on your relationships, it takes work. But that work is necessary. As well-functioning as your relationships may be currently, life tends to have a way to put a strain on your relational closeness. And when we talk about life putting a strain on our closeness, we cannot forget about relationship public enemy number one. Here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the NIV Bible says this, Be alert and sober of mind, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The enemy goes about like a roaring lion thinking, looking, searching for whom he may devour. Now, anybody that's gone to church for any length of time, you've heard this statement I'm going to say before. That statement is, well, you know, the devil's always busy. <laughs> You've heard that. Yep. Well, you know, the devil's always busy. Now, we don't, we don't want to give that rascal any airtime, but you and I need to know doggone well that the devil <coughs> means us no good. He has nothing good in store for our life. He is always looking and searching, turning over every rock in our life and in our relationship that he can exploit to make our lives worse. Yet I will share with you that I don't believe his goal is just to devour one person. I don't think it's the devil's goal to devour me or you, the individual only. I'd venture to say that he, he's, he's probably very unsatisfied or, or, or just upset with himself if he just destroys one. No. He has a very bad day at the office if he only destroys one person. His objective, his goal, his ambition is to inflict Maximum destruction. Quickly turn from 1 Peter to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to be in the King James Version. We want to consider 
the devil's interaction with Jesus. The enemy was always seeking for a way to kind of derail our Savior. Here in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Jesus has just come out of the scenario where the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And now here comes the devil looking to derail him, looking to get him during a moment of weakness, trying to exploit something to get Jesus on his side. In other words, to get Jesus to bypass any kind of wisdom from the Holy Spirit to get Jesus to destroy the master plan. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, King James Version. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he was afterwards hungered, he was in a point of weakness. It's when you and your wife argue that he want to stick his toe in the water. It's when you just told your child what he or she can't do that he wants to come tell your child, my mama don't love me, my daddy don't love me. It's during a point of weakness. He's searching for someone to devour. He's looking for a point. He's looking for an interest. He's looking for when you're hungry. You're hungry for a relationship. So you are settled for anything. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterwards and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, command these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now, this was only one of many times the enemy tried to derail our savior. And I can tell you in my heart of hearts, I believe he would have got some kind of little sidekick, some kind of little thrill on, you know, destroying Jesus the man. But his real joy would have come from destroying the plan for salvation. A destruction that would have had a ripple effect way beyond Jesus the man. It would have had a ripple effect that it would have destroyed lives for the rest of time. That's his goal. Not to just destroy one, but to destroy as many as possible. Therefore, the enemy getting you is one thing. The enemy being able to throw a monkey wrench in your relationship. That's bonus points for him. That's bonus points when he can drive a wedge between husband and wife, when he can drive a wedge between you and your, your extended family, when he can drive a wedge between you and your co-worker, when he can drive a wedge between you and the, your brother and sister of Christ. That's bonus points for him. Say this with me. We have an opposer, have an opposer. to the closeness and happiness, and happiness of our relationships. our relationships. Turn back to 1 Peter for me, chapter 5, NIV Bible. 
to combat our, our opposer, to combat the enemy, Jesus told him it is written. Jesus went back into the arms of God. First Peter chapter five here, verse nine tells us that when we are resisting our opposer, that we are to not just resist him, but to stand firm in the faith. In other words, step back into your covenant. First Peter chapter five, verse nine, NIV. Resist him. Let me start with verse eight. This is making complete. Be alert and sober of mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Verse nine, resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Resist him. But family, resistance, resisting, that's work. Resisting isn't a simple, fleeting act. It's work. And a person that is going to resist, he or she has to brace themselves properly in order to resist effectively. Resistance takes endurance. It takes exertion. And by the way, it's an exertion of a force that is greater than the force coming against you if you hope to resist effectively. Hear me clearly. I'm not saying that it is effective to resist with a force equal to the force coming against you. No, to be an effective person that resists effectively, you have to push with a force that is greater than the force of your opposer. Consider this analogy for clarity. If you hold this for me, Greta. Anybody ever entered into a, a fitness plan? Y'all been to fitness plan. Heck, do I look like I'm in a fitness plan, brother? Do I look like I've been in the gym? Well, let's, let's imagine. Back in your day, you know, let's imagine that, you know, you're in the fitness program. Now, I can tell you, hopefully this, this, this clarifies what we're saying, but a person that enters into a fitness program, and I have a, a, a well, well worldwide health guy in the back if I need to ask a question that can kind of clarify this for me. But that person, if they enter into a fitness program to increase their strength, that program puts them through a sequence of events that takes them to higher and higher weights. In other words, that program puts them through a series of interactions with more and more resistance. Now, let's say that person is going to do an exercise that requires them 
to do bench presses. And let's say that that person is me. And assume that I have this bar here in my hand and that this bar is racked and already racked such that its total weight is 200 pounds. I come and I get on the bench. And you know, I do all this stuff. Ah! Ah! <laughs> you know. You know how you do. You've been on that bench for five minutes, ain't did nothing yet. Doing your head left and right and all that. But it's racked. I take it off the rack and I push it on my chest. Now let me ask you, the weight's on my chest, how, how much does it weigh? 200 pounds, thank you, you're listening. So here I am. I take it off the rack and I put it down on my chest for the bench press. If I push this weight with a force of 200 pounds, where does the weight go? Let me ask you again. Some of you got it, some of you don't. How much is on the bar completely? 200 pounds. Okay. Let me, let me ask a different question before I say this example again. If you have a glass of water, and that glass of water is 40 degrees, that's how cool it is, 40 degrees. If you put that in a refrigerator, and that refrigerator's thermostat is set to 40 degrees, what does the temperature of the water move to? Nothing. It doesn't move. So once again, let's return to our example. I unrack this weight. That's a total of 200 pounds. I put it on my chest. And then I push up with the force of 200 pounds. Where does the bar go? The bar goes nowhere. The bar goes nowhere because I have to make a commitment and I have to put myself into the position to exert a force that is greater than the weight of the bar if I'm ever expected to get that press off of me. When the enemy is coming towards you, you have to press on him with a force that is greater than his desire to crush you. Many of us go through life not even exerting enough weight that's equal to what the enemy is trying to do to us. How do you ever expect for your relationship to get better? How do you ever expect anything in your life to get better when you won't push back on him harder than he's pushing back on you? Your commitment has to be that you're going to push. The enemy's on a mission. The enemy's on a mission, and he wants to come down and crush 
your relationships. Any relationship in your life that is good or that has the opportunity to be good. He don't want that relationship to survive. That's why he's going to put a press on it. He doesn't want it to survive. Why? Because he doesn't want to give that relationship the possibility to become a good, positive stronghold in your life. He wants to crush your relationships because he doesn't want that relationship to be a positive refuge for you in the event that you're weak. He wants to crush that relationship because there is, there is absolutely no way he wants that relationship to build a resume of good history that can pull you back to God if you stray. He wants your relationships destroyed and he has a push on you. You got to push harder than he's pushing on you. You got to be committed that he is not going to be somebody that comes in and just runs rough shot through your life doing whatever he wants to do. That is not acceptable. I'm going to push harder. The enemy will always push your relationships toward failure. He will always put your relationships to the point of destruction. He will always push your relationships to get weaker. He will always push your relationships to be bad, not good. He will always have the press on you. You will always be figuratively on that bench with him racking that weight, putting it down on your chest. But you need to be committed that you're going to push harder because in order to get him off of you, you got to push with a force harder than what he's pushing on you. You need to be able to resist him with a force greater both physically and spiritually. Now, needless to say, even though we're talking about exerting a physical resistance on him, we know that as believers, all of our actions result, result or originate from the spirit of God within. Everything that we do, God doesn't just lead us into spiritual warfare. That same God is the one that kind of directs us on what actions we should take towards others. God doesn't just lead us into spiritual warfare, warfare. That same God is the one who directs us on what we should say and how we should speak and what our tone should be when we converse with our loved ones, our family, our friends, our coworkers, and so on. That's the same God. Which, by the way, is the God that the Bible tells us and that we claim is greater. So the simple fact that God directs us and that we know him to be greater, that means that, guess what? We got access to the greater force. So the issue with us defeating the enemy, the issue with us resisting properly has nothing to do with us having access to greater. A major component 
or deciding factor and whether or not we're able to properly resist the enemy is whether or not we consistently and properly access the power and capability that Jesus Christ lived and resurrected for us to possess. That's one factor. But it's not the only factor. There is another deciding factor, and that, de fact, and that factor is this. And I want you guys to say it with me. Say another deciding factor, another deciding factor is, our is our frequency of aiding, of aiding and, abetting and abetting the enemy. Another deciding factor on whether or not we're able to properly resist and keep the devil out of our life is the frequency at which we help him. The frequency at which we support his plan. We can resist the devil in a variety of ways. And we can support him in a variety of ways also. Some of the ways that we support him are obvious, like negative interactions with people that we, you know, interact with. In other words, a negative interaction might be something like, you treat your husband bad. You talk down to your wife. You demean your children. You break trust with a friend. All of those things are evident. All of those things are obvious. And, you know, because they're so obvious, number one, we're not going to spend time with them. And plus, number two, I believe we've addressed some of that already. I want to address something else, though. I want to address another area of support that sometimes goes up under the radar. And it has to do with what our very topic is today. I want to address the issue that tends to go under the radar, and that is this. Sometimes we can support the enemy through relational Neglect. Here comes your common sense statement for today. Unopened milk still spoils. One more time. Unopened milk still spoils. If you would, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes, excuse me, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3 in the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm coming out of the King James Version. Chapter 3, verse 1, begins with this verse, and we, we are only reading verse 1. It says this, 
To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. The Message Bible, same verse. There's an opportune time to do things, a right time for everything on earth. Everything in life, family, has an element of timing. The Message Bible states it this way, that there is an opportune time to do things. This is particularly the case when it comes to relationships. You know, I don't know if I will ever run out of stories that apply to our message that come from my wife, Greta. They just seem endless. But you know, if it benefits the body of Christ, Amen. I feel obligated. <laughs> obligated to share. You know, Mr. Frank, may I hold that? Jug for me. Thank you. This here that I have in my hand is a bottle of milk. And this bottle of whole milk is very relevant to what we're talking about today. My wife, God bless her. My wife buys for herself milk. The interesting thing about it is that my wife is not a milk drinker. I know, you laugh. Because it's, because it's crazy. <laughs> Everyone that's grown up in the house just think it's, it's, it's crazy. Listen, for over 30 years I've known my wife, and for all of that time, she has bought milk in bottles like this, milk in jugs, and I can't tell you how much of that calcium-rich liquid that I've just had to pour right down the drain. And I don't just pour it down the drain because I want to. I pour it down the drain because the purchaser of said milk is a stickler also for expiration dates. Oh, I'm, I'm going to tell you the whole story. Now, this used to upset me, and, and I would reiterate again that it still does. But when I say it used to upset me, I mean, I used to, you know, I used to get in a grill about it. I used to, I used to, I used to just really cause a big deal about it. But, you know, it didn't do no good because she kept, she kept buying the milk. But, you know, it was irritating to me because it was like literally pouring money down the drain. If you buy milk, doggone it, drink the milk. That's, it does about it good. Look. Let me tell you, family. My wife, as my witness, 
I am not, the, the person I became was not, I am not today a person that is really a, a stickler about what it is you're buying. My biggest passion in everything is, listen, money don't come easy. So whatever you buy with it, you doggone well better use it. That's all I care about. You want to buy 15 watermelon? I'm good with that. You just need to be a watermelon eating rascal for the next week. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to give you no issue with that. You obviously had a hankering for watermelon. And if I look and all that watermelon's eating up, you know what? All is good in my world. If I see 12 watermelons, whatever it is, in the garbage can, though, during garbage day, I ain't happy. Same with this milk. <laughs> I wasn't happy. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm just pouring milk, dog, on it down the drain, which is, for me, it's like, chingling, 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 chingling. I had the dollars and cents going down the drain, huh? <laughs> so, one day, guys, I was throwing away milk bottle of jug, 4,000. Okay, that's an exaggeration, but it's a lot of them. But I will tell you, nothing really got up under my skin like whenever I had to throw away an unopened bottle of milk. That just made the temperature on the back of my neck go fish grease hot. <laughs> just hot. Thank God I got you throwing away some unopened milk. Why she bought this from the store, I had no idea. No, she wasn't going to drink this doggone milk. <laughs> there I am throwing it away <laughs> for the 4,000th time. <laughs> One day I was throwing away an unopened bottle of milk. And God said to me, he said, that unopened milk is the story of some of your relationships if you're not careful. <laughs> that unopened milk is the story of some of your relationships if you're not careful. You see, when you first got it, everything was good. Everything was good and then you took it and you put it in an atmosphere that you thought gave it the best opportunity to survive. You put it in that place and you left it alone. And you walked away. You put it in that self, that place, and you walked away. And for a while, it did fine. However, once you had it in your possession, you never touched it again. You ignored that milk. 
you left it there unengaged and you ignored it. You ignored that milk and it spoiled, spoiled before you could ever take advantage of its capacity to nourish and strengthen your life. Son, unopened milk still spoils. In the same manner, in your relationships. Son, those relationships are meant to nourish and strengthen your life, but if you ignore them, they can spoil before you benefit from them or they from you. Never forget, unopened milk still spoils. Gave me a new twist on relationships. Gave me a new desire to engage. Gave me a new perspective on everyone in my circle. And the longer I live, the more I find that to be true. So I say to you, you must be always attentive to the people in your circle. Now, being attentive doesn't necessarily mean you taking an open and active posture. You know, something that we can see. Being attentive to your relationships, maybe just keeping that watchful eye at a distance. But at no time should you neglect that relationship. If that relationship is good, or if that relationship has the potential to be good, you should never put yourself in a position to where you're neglecting it. Instead, you should always keep your finger on the pulse of your relationships in some kind of way. This means you and I should dedicate some quality time and attention to the personal connections that God has put in our lives. If we don't, if we choose to neglect them, if we choose to put them away and never touch them again, if we choose to assume that they're good no matter what, then what we will end up recognizing is that those relationships may actually be taking a turn for the worse. And we neglected them. And because we neglected them, we neglected them, now our lives are going to fail to benefit from the nourishment and the strength and the benefit that they were putting our, put in our lives to provide us. Said differently, if we do not care for those relationships, if we neglect them, we may learn the hard way that even a good thing when left uncared for and unattended can go bad. Turn to Matthew 25. <coughs> King James Version, I'm going to be in verse 14. Neglect family is a bad thing. And we can take neglect and roll it all up into 
some term that sounds like the lack of attention. If we wanted to be very specific, we would say the lack of proper attention. Because you can give something the attention, but it don't be the proper attention. So it's the lack of proper attention that leads you into neglect. Now, the lack of that attention can take at least two subtle forms. One form is the lack of engagement. The other is the lack of oversight. Or we can say that one as failure to protect your relationship from negative influences. So we're putting all that in one. The first one is the lack of engagement. The second one is a lack of oversight or a failure to protect your relationships from negative outside influences or just negative influences because your influence can be on the inside too that's negative. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his servants, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that received the five talents went and traded with the same, the same, and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that received two, he also gained, he also gained other two. But he that received one went and digged in the earth and hid the Lord's money. In other words, he just took that money away. Right now, he's setting up himself in, in a position to where he is failing to engage. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoned with him. And so he that received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, Thou deliverest unto me five talents, and behold, I've gained besides them five talents more. Now, just to, to sum this all up, he gave one five talents or some money, one two talents, I mean one one talent. The five talent person is going to say, we took your money and we made more money out of it. The two talent person is going to say, we took your money and we made more money out of it. The one talent person is not going to be able to say that. The person that decided to take that talent and hide it in the ground has this to say. <coughs> Starting here. At verse. 24. Yes, thank you, Miss Grace. Starting in verse 24. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord. I knew thee that thou art a hard man and hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou had not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there, here thou art, here thou hast that is thine. I apologize. Hold on. What's funny? I read it wrong. 
So I'm going to go back to verse 24. I'm going to go to verse 24. And I'm going to start again. You're welcome. I appreciate it. No, you're doing what I asked you to do. I'm good with that. I'm good with that. So let me read this again. And this time I'm going to try to hit every word in the correct word. Verse 24. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not straw. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gathered where I have not straw. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have had received mine own with usury. You see, the servant just took this money, he tucked it away. He did not properly engage something that the Lord had put into his life. He took no steps to grow it. He failed to engage and no engagement, no return. Just like the servant with one talent, if you, would, if you took your relationships away, expecting those relationships to benefit you, but you have invested nothing in that relationship, then don't you be surprised that you get nothing in return. If you put no time in and you get no effort towards it, it is nonsensical for you to think that you're going to get something else out of it. Generally speaking, you get out of your relationships what you put in them. Here's where we slow down and pause for today. All your relationships require some form of attention. And we're not just talking about any old attention. They thrive on the right amount and the right frequency of attention. And each one of your relationships, you got to recognize, is its own organism. Each relationship is its own organism. So the attention you give to one is not necessarily appropriate, desired, or necessary for another. The attention one gives each relationship must be custom fit. And we'll pick up there next time. Let's pray. We pray that today's message was a blessing to you. If you would like to help us further expand the vision, simply text the word GIVERTM to the number 41444 or visit us online at www.revealingtruth.org. Now remember, Jesus loves you.